Welcome to the podcast, Estate Planning with Paul Rabelais, where we'll discuss the latest and simplest legal strategies and tactics available for you to protect your estate for yourself and your family, all in easy-to-understand terms. It's all about protecting your estate now, so you and your loved ones can reap the benefits later. And now your host, estate planning attorney, Paul Rabelais. So in this podcast, I'm going to address several relevant provisions regarding the succession of Tom Benson. So hey everybody, I'm Paul Rabelais. I'm an estate planning attorney helping people all around South Louisiana, from Metairie to Mandeville to Baton Rouge to Lafayette, making sure their legal affairs are in order and then making sure it's simple for the family when that loved one passes away. And I've been asked on several occasions um, to answer different questions about what's going on with the Tom Benson estate, what's going on with the Tom Benson succession, and getting those questions now that he's passed away, and also you know, got them when the prior litigation was happening. So I thought I'd just share a few of my kind of observations and you know, some of the stuff I hear and read is inaccurate. Um, reporters are doing their best, but it can be complicated. So I thought I'd uh, just give my analysis of what I see happening, although I'm not a, a lawyer for any of the parties involved. I'm just reviewing what the public uh, is reviewing and giving my analysis of it. So I'll start, and I'm really breaking it down into into three aspects. One is the provisions of the will. Two is how uh, the procedural aspects of the succession are going. And then three, the estate tax ramifications of what Mr. Benson has done. So first thing I'll, I'll take a look at and, and comment on is the is the will. And when I say the will, it's really... The last will and testament, which was dated July 27th, 2015, and then also what's called a, a codicil, or I guess in layman's terms, you could, you could call it an amendment, a codicil to the will dated uh, March 22nd, 2017. So let's take a look at it, and I'm just going to hit the parts that are worth commenting on as I take a look at the will um, there's a fairly standard provision, 1.01. Uh, Mr. Benson had apparently set up a revocable trust at the same time that he did his will. And one of the reasons perhaps he set up this revocable trust was to keep some things private. Uh, assets that are in a revocable trust and the terms of the revocable trust as to what happens when Mr. Benson dies... Uh, can remain private when those terms are in a trust, but it's very public when those terms are in a will, as we're finding out. So Mr. Benson said in his will, I leave all the property of which I I possess to the trustees of the Tom Benson July 2015 revocable trust, you know, etc. Okay, so what he did after that was a little unusual, but I think I understand why they did it. The next provision in the will says if that trust, the Tom Benson July 2015 revocable trust, is for any reason not in existence as of the date of my death, I leave my estate to the trustees of the Gail Benson Marital Trust, which shall be governed by the following provisions. And it goes on to talk about the provisions of a trust. So he put in his will a testamentary trust 
uh, as to what happens to all of his holdings, all of his assets, but the provisions of that trust will only apply if his July 2015 revocable trust is not in existence as of the date of his death. So I got to think that the terms of the revocable trust are maybe uh, either very similar or similar to the provisions of this trust that's in his will that would govern in case his revocable trust was not in existence when he died. Maybe he was covering himself in case uh, the trust was successfully challenged, um, then it would fall back to the will provision. So let's take a look at the provisions of the trust that's in the will, which only applies if the revocable trust isn't in existence, but it probably mimics the terms of the revocable trust. So what it says is that his spouse or his wife, Gail, shall get the income from that trust for the rest of her lifetime. She's what's called the income beneficiary for her life. So he wanted her to have the income, probably some tax reasons, not probably, uh, I would bet on it that there are some tax reasons that motivated that. We'll get to that in a minute. And he talked about how uh, Gail and Dennis would be the co-trustees of that trust except that Gail Benson will have the sole right to exercise all voting power over Benson Football LLC and Benson Basketball LLC. So he carved out and wanted Gail to be able to call the shots regarding his football and basketball operations. Other than that, the two of them are the co-trustees in charge of managing all of the trust assets. And then another relevant provision in that trust says that when Gail dies... The trust assets, or rather the trust principal, shall be distributed 50% to the estate of Gale and the remainder, or the remaining 50%, to the Gale and Tom Benson Charitable Foundation. So when Gale dies, there's likely to be you know, billions of dollars of assets that will go half to Gale's estate, so she'll get to determine who gets that half and then the other half to his charitable foundation. So he probably put the charitable foundation in there for a couple of reasons. One was he didn't want his descendants to get anything for reasons well documented. And then two, what's left to a charity escapes the 40% estate tax. More on that when we talk about the estate tax in a moment. So the next provision I want to talk about is a provision in his will 1.04 where he said he specifically provided that Renee Benson, Rita LeBlanc, and Ryan LeBlanc and all of their descendants shall have no interest in my succession whatsoever and no legacy or other inheritance or benefit of any kind shall be paid to any of them under this will or otherwise. So taking a look at that provision, he didn't really have to say, I leave so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so nothing. You know, when when you're going to exclude someone, you don't have to specifically state that you're excluding them. However, any discussion of excluding descendants has to be looked at in light of our Louisiana forced airship laws. The bottom line on the rather complicated and ambiguous forced airship laws, which were really watered down in the 90s, um, what it boils down to is if his child can successfully assert that she's a forced heir, 
she'll be automatically entitled to one-fourth of his estate. And quite frankly, if you look at some of the numbers that are out there, people have talked about his Saints ownership being worth $2 billion, his Pelicans ownership being worth $1 billion. You look at those two assets alone, $3 billion, and if he has a forced heir, that forced heir would be entitled to one-fourth or $750 million. So let's take a look at forced heirship as it might apply in his circumstances. It's a stretch, but let's look at it anyway. A child will be deemed a forced heir if, well, it could be a variety of things, but the one that could apply here is if the child, because of mental incapacity or physical infirmity, is permanently incapable of taking care of their persons or administering their estates at the time of the death of the decedent. And under our forced heirship law, that definition includes children who, at the time of death of the decedent, or Mr. Benson, have, according to medical documentation, an inherited incurable disease or condition that may render them incapable of caring for their persons or administering their estates in the future. So let me repeat that again. If a child of his has a disease or condition that may render them incapable of caring for their persons or administering their estates in the future, then there are forced heirs, forced heir. So you can start to see where that can get really ambiguous and subjective. A lot of dollars on the line here. If he has a forced heir and rough math, $750 million. If doesn't have a forced heir, zero. Now, I know it's a stretch here, but if his child successfully asserts that she is a forced heir, then he, he, he didn't, but he could have had provisions in his will um, expressly disinheriting the forced heir if um, one of these just causes to disinherit a child exists. The one that's used most often is when a child, after attaining the age of majority and knowing how to contact the parent, has failed to communicate with the parent without just cause for a period of two years. So sometimes in wills we see something like if a descendant of mine successfully asserts uh, rights as a forced heir, then I expressly disinherit that child for the just cause of failing to communicate for two years. But that provision what in it what in his will i'm not faulting anybody for not putting it in his will but um you know our forced airship law is a little murky and there's a lot at stake here but i'm not familiar with the circumstances that applied you know and the relationships that were involved there so anyway um there is that provision in his will that just says um i i specifically provide that they get nothing but to disinherit a forced heir, it, it must be uh, made expressly and for a just cause. And none of those just causes were mentioned in his will. The next provisions that I felt were relevant to discuss were the appointment of the executor. So in 3.01, he appoints Dennis as the executor. If Dennis can't do it, it's going to be Gail. If Gail can't do it, then it's Mickey and Greg. And I, and I kind of got a kick. When, if, it, if it did get down to Mickey and Greg, which it probably won't, 
then it says in his will that in the event that Mickey and Greg cannot agree on any matter, Mickey's decision will control. So I've seen a lot of clients and, and they don't want to offend somebody. So they want to include two people and they want to uh, include that potentially offended person who wouldn't be included, but they want to, they want to give somebody else, you know, all of the say so. So really technically, instead of saying, uh, I name Mickey and Greg, and if they can't agree, I name Mickey to make all the decisions. Probably just should have said, I name Mickey. So, uh, but, you know, I, I see some of prob- what is probably Mr. Kind of Benson's thoughts coming out in the, in the will. Another interesting provision is in that same realm of appointing the executor, it says that the provisions contained in the Tom Benson July 2015 revocable trust uh, shall govern the compensation of my executor. So since we're talking about some really big numbers here, it gets kind of interesting because um, if nothing had been mentioned about executor compensation and if Mr. Benson's you know assets were in his name when he died and they were part of the succession and if those assets were worth $3 billion when he died. Uh, our Louisiana law has a provision which says the executor is entitled to compensation of 2.5% of the inventory of assets in the succession. So if you have a $3 billion succession and you do the math and apply 2.5%, that executor compensation comes to $75 million. So, you know, good work if you can get it, but they had enough insight to write something in that I suspect deviates from the uh, default 2.5% succession representative. Plus, I don't know if Mr. Benson's assets, the $3 billion, were in his succession or already in his trust. But it says the trust governs um, compensation of my executor. And then my final comment on uh, the, er, the, will, the, the will dated July 27, 2015, is in order to, to make a will like this valid called a not- notarial will, it has to be notarized and witnessed by two people. It has to have the proper you know, wording and uh, clauses at the end, which it has. And the will, uh, as most wills, was notarized, I presume, by the attorney who prepared the will. That's very common. And then there were two witnesses. And in the normal course of a lawyer getting wills done, it's typically the you know administrative assistants who come in and, and sign off as witnesses when the person signs their will. Not in Mr. Benson's case. Um, Archbishop, you know, uh, the Archbishop was... Uh, signed as one of the two witnesses to his will, um, I can only assume that uh, there was a reason for that. I know that when someone contests a will or contests the validity of the will or, or contests the capacity of the person or whether they were influenced when they signed their will, you know, uh, important in that determination is the testimony of the notary and the witnesses who were there in the room when the person signed the will. So if there is a, you know, contest regarding the validity of the will, the notary and the witnesses, including the archbishop, 
would be called to testify whether, in their opinion, you know, Mr. Benson had the necessary capacity to generally understand what he was doing. So I found it interesting that the archbishop was one of the witnesses. And then my last comment about the will refers to this codicil to the will, which was dated March 22, 2017, almost a couple of years after he signed his original will. Apparently what happened was he amended his 2015 revocable trust. So they wanted to sign a new codicil to the will to clearly establish that when in his will he left his estate to his trust, he was leaving it to the trust as amended or otherwise modified even after the original revocable trust was prepared. And because it says in his codicil that he was executing an amendment to the trust at the same time that he was executing this codicil, leaving his estate to the trust as amended or modified. And then my last issue that I'm going to make a few comments on involves the federal estate tax. It doesn't affect most people. Um, people who die in 2018, the first $11.2 million of assets that they have is exempt from the 40% estate tax. So 99 point something percent of people don't have to worry about the estate tax. But uh, his estate was, was you know, very large in the billions. So any discussion about the settling of estate should include a discussion about the estate tax. Our federal estate tax system is set up so that married couples can arrange their legal affairs so that no estate tax is required to be paid when the first spouse dies. And so we have a estate tax rule called the, you know, called the unlimited marital deduction. And by Mr. Benson leaving his estate to a trust the income from which would be payable to his spouse for her lifetime that qualifies for this special uh, what's called Q-tip or estate tax treatment. They will file an estate tax return that's due nine months from the date of his death showing all of the assets that he owned and all of the assets that were a part of his estate. But because of this marital deduction rule, it will also show that no estate tax is due and all of these assets in excess of the $11.2 million exemption will flow into his wife's estate to be taxed when she dies. So these are some pretty big numbers. If you, if you look at a $3 billion estate and you apply a 40% tax, um, $1.2 billion of potential tax when his wife dies. Of course, they want it in cash, even though the tax is based on the fair market value of the estate assets. Um, reminds me of, on a similar sports note, when Joe Robbie passed away as the owner of the Miami Dolphins, and I believe their stadium, um, he had to sell the Dolphins to pay the 40-something million dollar estate tax bill, which is a pittance compared to the potential estate tax when Miss Gail Benson passes away. Now, going back to the way he arranged his affairs under this default trust, if the revocable trust is not in existence, and I think the revocable trust terms are similar to the default trust, 
Uh, he left you know, half of his estate when, when Gail passes away to his foundation. When someone leaves assets to a, a charitable organization, then those assets avoid being subject to the estate tax calculation. So I got to feel like that was one of the reasons why um, he left uh, as the principal beneficiaries of his trust. He left his charitable foundation as a principal beneficiary in order to reduce that potential estate tax liability. So it appears that uh, one day the, the saints and the pelicans may be really controlled by you know, their, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Benson's charitable foundation. The other principal beneficiary of Mr. Benson's trust is the estate of Gail, if you look at that uh, default testamentary trust. Perhaps she too will leave her estate or the bulk of it to their charitable foundation. So that might be their plan to avoid a, you know, a quick forced sale of these you know, sports teams that are incredibly valuable um, and that might be their, their way to avoid estate tax. Not unlike some even wealthier folks are planning to do the Bill Gates of the world, the Warren Buffetts of the world. Uh, they've very publicly stated that they're leaving their estates to the, um, the Bill Gates or Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in order to not only help lots of people, but avoid the, the very significant um, estate tax that would otherwise apply if assets were left to individuals. So there you have it, a few quick observations. Um, really admire all of the good things that Mr. Benson has done during his lifetime, both his, his business acumen, his charitable interests, um, the way he handled the saints, let them do a Super Bowl, um, all very, very impressive and it looks like there was some, you know, some well thought out uh, plans made for the future of his estate and those organizations. So um, hope this helps give you some clarification, give you some guidance. A lot of questions about it. A lot of articles being written. Wanted to give you my observations and uh, hope this helps you understand things as to how things might go in the future. All right. So uh, who dat? Y'all have a good day. Take care. Rest in peace.